It's August 24th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science and technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First off, we're going to look ahead on the local tech calendar. First up is this weekend's Hawaii Annual Code Challenge, and Leila Kagawa is here to give us an update. Then our good friend Shinoa Farnsworth joins us from Blue Startups to tell us what they're looking for in their next cohort of companies. And finally, after the break, we'll explore what it means to be an artist in residence. More science organizations have taken a novel approach to visualize and share their work with the public. Artists uh, Laurie Sumie and Rebecca Rutstein is, uh, are both here, and we're going to be talking also to Carly Weiner and, from the uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute and Tanya Ortega from the National Parks Arts Foundation. A full house for yes. sure. We're going to discuss how art intersects with science and where artists find their inspirations when you're on a research expedition. Of course, we also welcome your comments and questions as part of the conversation. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. Of course, first up, we want to welcome Leila Kagawa. She's from the state's Enterprise Technology Services Group, and she's here to tell us about the upcoming Hawaii Annual Code Challenge. And welcome to the show, Leila. Thanks for having me. Now, you know, I, I recall a segment this morning on Hawaii News Now about the, the Hawaii Annual Code Challenge, and, and uh, Todd Nakapoi was on talking about it. But we want to hear it from you. I mean, what, what was it that sort of got this Code Challenge kicked off. Why did the, all of a sudden the state want to do this code challenge? Yeah, you know, we've been in the IT development community and we've been hearing a lot about hackathons and how the coding community is coming together with business, with government to really solve problems and challenges. And the governor happened to be with our CIO at a hackathon about three or four months ago. And they thought, why wh- why wouldn't we do something for government and let's start something in, in state? So we got together, Todd came to talk to us and say, hey, let's host a code challenge. And we're excited to do, it's going to be our first annual. And, you know, we have a lot of sponsorship from the community, a lot of partners, and really wanted to get around government challenges. So we're excited. Well, I I love the acronym, Hoi Annual Code uh, Challenge, or HACK. Hack. And, uh, of course, (laughs) Bert Lum playing a critical role both in the local community in terms of organizing hackathons in general and specifically with HACK and working with sponsors. And we're going to hear some of them in a little bit. But one of the things that you've been doing is doing sort of – outreach to the community. And what, what they do is something called a reverse pitch. Rather than pitching a solution, they're looking for people to pitch problems, specifically departments or citizens saying, this is a problem that I think technology and code and innovation can help. Uh, were you participating in any of these outreach events? Or can you talk about some of the feedback you've been getting from the community? Yes, I think it's been very exciting going out to the community and asking them, you know, what are the things that they struggle with with government services? Are they familiar with what's available? So we've been hearing a lot from the community talking about whether it's coming home, transportation, I'm filling out the agriculture form, can that be something that is on an app? Mm. You know, is uh, I'm a school parent, I my kids go to school, and can I pay for my lunches online, Right. Um, Can I get traffic information or safety information in my community so that I can maybe get a community group together to really do neighborhood watch, right? So it's been really interesting being out in the community and hearing from them. So we're allowing citizens to submit their ideas through the website. And we're also taking challenges from departments that want citizen engagement to solve and strategize in terms of how we solve these problems. So what sort of uh, departments have actually sort of expressed interest in participating in doing the reverse pitch? Yeah, so we've had Um, agriculture come forward um, talking about you know maybe some of the local made in Hawaii products how can we get people connected to them 
Um, we've had uh, the Department of Public Safety come forward talking about how they can maybe look at efficiencies in terms of scheduling and visitation for their families and people that are um, housed at the correctional facilities. Uh, we have health coming forward with talking about an app that would maybe or a system that would uh, connect uh, disabled citizens to better jobs, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. really advancing their skills and um, and their talents. And then there's a lot of interest in terms of homelessness. So we have someone from the nonprofit sector coming in and doing a pitch. And we also have the state homelessness coordinator coming forward and really asking the community for advisement on how to move forward with some of these initiatives. No, that's great. That's great. And the idea is, again, they they will go up and talk for maybe about five to ten minutes and give a sense of what the challenge is, maybe frame the challenge, maybe identify some of the resources that are available, mm-hmm. and then set the set the audience loose on maybe forming some teams and working on it. Yeah, we really want them to focus on what the problem and need is and really give the opportunity and flexibility of these teams to come in with creativity and originality around a system or a prototype. Now, Leila, a lot of hackathons are, in many cases, a demonstration or really a celebration of being a coder or developer or a designer uh, it's more about the exercise of coming up with a solution and prototyping something quickly and showing it off on stage. But obviously, when you're talking about government services, you're talking about civic engagement, it's not something that you want to do just for fun. It's something that you want to be sustainable to build into something new. So this hack uh, hackathon, H-A-C-C hackathon, mm-hmm. is not just a single day or even a single weekend, correct? Right. So we decided to really give that a little bit more opportunity for maybe ideas to simmer a little bit and encourage a lot of collaboration and dialogue. So we're going to host it over a 30-day period. So it gives the team's ability to work with the state departments, get more feedback, and we really want to look at prototypes that are going to be maybe uh, sustainable, that's something that could be possibly implementable, maybe something that could be funded by legislative um, support, right, Mm -hmm, so that mm -hmm. we can get systems that we could prototype and get into a future phase. So we're really looking for that. So one of the judging criteria is really looking at that. How sustainable is this system or prototype? Can this be adopted by the state staff? And can we support it? And then, you know, can we make sure that it does serve the citizen well at the end of the day? Now, well, how, op- how, how optimistic are you perhaps that uh, perhaps, you know, a department says, wow, we wanted this solution. Now this code challenge came and this beautiful app came together, does exactly what we want. But certainly we all know that for a variety of reasons, the, the procurement process, the bids and contractors and all of that, it's not quite as easy as basically saying your app is great. Let's buy it. Um, will there be sort of a, a framework also coming together to allow these solutions if they are something that the state government wants to proceed with to make that connection, make that leap happen? Yeah, so there's differently different avenues to make that happen. So if they want to go through the route and say, I've got the prototype, this is a business case to go to the legislature, there mm. could be maybe a startup option, right? So they could go to a funder or someone that wants to invest, and we can look to the community to help us with that. So we're really open in terms of how to mature that cycle and giving the opportunity for the citizens to come forward with some suggestions and recommendations how to make that happen so that we can see something in place sooner rather than later. Um, As you spoke of, Ryan, the normal process with state can be very long. So we're trying to really innovate and collaborate and use the hackathon mentality to really start up up ideas, right? Right, and I think uh, that's a great recognition of the fact that a lot of the hackathons have the ability to come up with some innovative ideas, but the really true value comes into play when you can get those prototypes to market. Mm-hmm. So if there's a way to go to market with any of those prototypes, and, and again, you know, there are a variety of different paths mm-hmm. to that sustainability. And if we're able to 
you know, maybe at least provide some nurturing toward that that process, uh, I think we will have something to show for when we kick off the 2017, right. you know, code challenge, right? Right. We want this to be an annual event. Mm-hmm. So that will be different challenges that get presented with different passion and interest, right? But it's really also a workforce development opportunity for our state employees in working in IT and really to welcome the school communities to see what government's doing so that maybe we can give opportunities to them to come for them to come into the workforce. Mm-hmm. So we want to this is a way for our state employees to visualize what's out there and connect it to kind of modernized technology. Now, a lot of hackathons also you might hear from participants that you know, bragging rights are great, but it doesn't really do everything for me. So one of the things that Hack has coming is uh, prizes and even, um, you know, rewards for participation. And that comes through sponsors. Uh, Who are some of the partners and sponsors you're working with? And what does that look like in terms of the incentive for a participant? Yeah, so we've been very blessed to have sponsors really come to the table and want to help us uh, to mention, you know, Hawaiian Telecom, DR Fortress, to Hawaiian Electric, Verizon Wireless. I mean, a lot of these partners we work with every day really want us to have move uh, move these problems forward. So as far as the prize sponsorships, we really want to, we're going to have school categories. So um, school teams that come forward that have a winning entry, they'll get um, money donated to their programs in IT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we have the open um, college professional categories where we'll give seed money maybe to kind of move an idea forward. Um, so there'll be cash prizes available there. And something that was just added is we hope to maybe send a team that you know presents this very innovative concept and uh, idea to a, a national hackathon that's going to focus on homelessness, right? Mm. So trying to sponsor them to send a team to represent the state of Hawaii. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that uh, I think the we're going to give the uh, governor uh, the ability to choose mm-hmm. a team and you know send them to. I think it's going to take place in St. Louis, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, give them a little stipend to maybe help them along their way to to get to that. Uh, the, the you know the we want to thank the you know the the platinum sponsors. We got Hawaiian Electric. They were the first Verizon. Uh, KPMG just came in, and I heard uh, Kaiser is also a platinum sponsor. Right, so right. we want to thank those guys. I mean, you know, and they're you really have partners supportive. like Blue Startup. Well, yes. Blue is going to be you know what what one of the pathways that potentially yes. could be a way for uh, some of these teams to, to go forward is if they wanted to start up something and maybe go through an accelerator process, they will get a at least a final interview with Blue Startup. So that'll be kind of a cool yeah, thing. I was just getting to that. But yeah, so we're lucky to have partners like Blue Startups and really you know, help us get introduced as, as far as the state to this process and what that's like. We also have Sultan Ventures and Accelerate UH sort of helping them with these interviews. You know mm-hmm, what? Mm-hmm. So, so we're happy to have that as part of the prize award pool, if you will. So they'll have opportunities to work with different uh, entities. Well, very good. So, so Layla, where is this taking place and where can people sign up? Yeah, so we hope to have everyone come down. You can get more information on the hacc.hawaii.gov website and it's happening this Saturday from 10 a.m. at Aloha Tower Marketplace. Uh, So come join us. Great. Fantastic. Sounds good. See you there. Well, thanks, Layla. Thank you. And of course, uh, we want to welcome our friend Shanoa Fonsworth and she's here to tell us about the Next uh, recruitment for cohort number eight, which may have a civic tech company, who knows, <laughs> involved <laughs> in that. But Shona, what's happening with the cohort eight? Yeah, aloha, guys. Thanks for having me sure. back. Uh, cohort eight, well, we were just talking about is the auspicious Lucky cohort. Yeah. So uh, we are looking for some very 
very good companies. We already have a lot of applicants. The applications are due next week, September Mm -hmm. 1st. So that's why we want to urge everyone who's thinking about it, maybe sitting on the sidelines to come out. Um, For our friends with the the hackathon, of course, they'll still get a chance, a shot on goal, even though they'll be coming in the gate a little late. That's fine. Um, And we're always wanting to listen to our local um, applicants all the way through the process. But you'll definitely get the best look possible if you apply by as next week, possible. by mm-hmm. the deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't guarantee we can we can do anything past that, but we try. Now, you just uh, finished uh, cohort number seven. We featured some of those uh, cohort members. It was lucky number seven. As you mentioned, number eight is lucky. Also, perhaps more on the, the eastern side. Right. Um, well, first of all, how did cohort seven go? You just uh, you wrap everyone up with this trip to San Francisco to showcase these companies right. in uh, in uh, San Francisco. How was that? That's right. It was great. You know, it's our seventh trip to Silicon Valley and the Bay Area with our cohorts, and they each trip gets better and better. Uh, this was action-packed. We literally didn't have a second <laughs> to even, you know, look around. Um, and our demo day there... Uh, which was at the 500 Startups office in um, Silicon Valley, actually, at the Mountain View office, hmm. was packed, jam-packed. We actually sold out and had to stop uh, selling tickets, which is a first for us in the Bay Area because, you know, that is not our, our home. Mm-hmm. So it's always uh, a challenge to to get energy up there and to get the uh, participation. And so we were really fortunate this time around. And just in general, that Blue Startups, the brand keeps growing and keeps uh, gaining national recognition and also international recognition. So you mentioned that the, we had lucky number seven. I think it, that's funny. That's in the Western world and the number eight being lucky in the Eastern world. And that's, again, back to the kind of Blue Startups thesis of this East meets West uh, kind of nexus point. And so we're also gearing up for East meets West 2017 which the cohort eight will culminate in that event. So those lucky guys will get to pitch to that big audience here in Hawaii at our signature annual event. Now, you had an event just last week just to get people together and network and talk about maybe doing a quick pitch uh, on their company or idea. How did that go? We did, yeah. Again, packed house, really exciting to see the whole you know ecosystem growing like that. Uh, also really excited to have our friends from Dev League there. Mm-hmm. And they had all of their newly minted devs, even some devs that were still taking classes. And so we really did kind of the, the mix and mingle thing. It kind of feels like you're playing a matchmaker. You know, you like that guy? Yeah, he's kind of cute. I kind of <laughs> like that guy. You know, so we're looking for dev talent for companies that might not have it. Mm-hmm. Ideally, people uh, or companies that apply to Blue have both you know, technology, talent, and business acumen. Mm-hmm. So that's the magic formula for us, and that's why we put on events like the the Founders Mixer so that hopefully that magic can happen before they apply right. so that they don't apply with half of that equation and we have to turn them down or tell them, go find the other half and come back. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, there's wide agreement across the, the space that really it's about the team more than the idea. In fact, if you have the right team, you're probably going to change ideas four or five times. Exactly. So it's really about the people involved. Now, for people who are listening and they said, oh, you know, I've always imagined a startup or an app or I think this could make a million bucks. I mean, <laughs> at what stage of, of evolution do you think you would need to be to be a good candidate Mm -hmm. to be a cohort member of Blue Startups. Yeah, again, ideally, you have already um, built prototype, what we call MVP, a minimum viable product, and have some proof point that people want to buy it. 
right? That it, it sounds simple, but you'd be surprised. There are companies that get really far without ever having tested that simple hypothesis. Do I have something that people want to buy? So again, ideally, the applicant comes with some proof point on that on their hypothesis that, that people want to buy it, um, but not always. And again, we never want to shut the door on anyone. We have taken in companies at all stages, from you know idea to they've got you know thousands of customers. So it it really is an open door. We just want to talk to all the entrepreneurs out there and see if we can help them. Mm-hmm. Now, after the uh, founders event, did you did you get a a bunch of uh, signups, potential companies that are coming in and applying? Yeah, we had a, we had a lot of companies there that were were already kind of on our radar, mm-hmm. and um, and so that was good to see because we had been talking to them and they came to check us out, um, which is always good uh, because it is kind of a, a dating uh, you know type. They have to see the value in us as well as us seeing the value in them. So we saw a lot of those companies. And then, of course, there's always a whole host of folks you didn't know were out there, which mm. is fantastic. And I love and to see that. And then you got that. guys like me who just want the pizza. And then there's that people happens. who come for the free pizza and, <laughs> Some familiar and faces beer. Like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true, which is fine. Well, you're, you're <laughs> looking for the value in them. They're looking for the value in, in you. What is it that you say you can provide? Because you said sometimes you get uh, applicants that have existing customers of totally sustainable business. Right. What is it that they would consider uh, participating? So uh, for businesses at that stage in particular, usually they're looking for that next round of funding. Mm. And we have built up a substantial network of funders throughout really, you know, the globe, but primarily here in Silicon Valley that can help our companies at any stage. So it's to facilitate that process to get them ready for that process. Again, you'd be surprised how far you can get as a company and still not be able to tell your story very well Mm -hmm. and be able to close the deal with investors. Those are different skill sets than your tech guy or other types of entrepreneurs necessarily have. So those are skills that can be taught, and it's part of you know the process that we put them through. So once they get in, what's the commitment of time for going through the accelerator process? Well, you can ask Ryan. He yeah, was a little bit there, but <laughs> it is full-time. For those members that are committed full-time to the team, they are there full-time. Plus, I mean, really what we say is the, the office is open 24 hours, and we expect you to be there as much of those 24 hours as you can stand it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is a very short period of time, right? 14 weeks, mm-hmm. it goes by quick. Very so, fast. You know, we are always urging our entrepreneurs to put in the time because you'll get out of the program what you put into it. If you slack off, and guess what? It's not going to have the value that you thought it would. That's right, that's right. Well, very good. Thanks, Noah. I mean, where, where can they go to uh, sign up? Bluestartups.com. The application is there on our website, so you can check that out. Before September 1st. Before September 1st. And if you did miss our Founders Mixer last week and you are interested in the program, we're also having a webcast tomorrow at 1 p.m. Hmm. Hawaii time, kind of a, a Ask Me Anything format with uh, yours truly. Fantastic. So. Great. Tune into I that. mean, if you want to send me that link, I'll put it up on our show notes okay. later on tonight. Yeah. Well, thanks, Shanoa, for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by artists Laurie Sume and Rebecca Rutstein, who's also on the line, and Carly Weiner from the Schmidt Ocean Institute, along with Tanya Ortega from the National Parks Arts Foundation. Can artists present science in a new and captivating way? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor rounds, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in a studio. You can tweet us. Us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. 
We live in a petro-fueled world, be it by rail, pipeline, or ship. Those barrels will have to come from somewhere. And it is our view that those, a lot of those barrels come from crude by rail. I'm Kyle Rizdahl, Black Gold, and the debate over the best way to transport the stuff that is next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following Bike Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Guy Finley, author of The Courage to Be Free, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about your right to be free. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Laurie Sumie and Rebecca Rutstein, and as well as Carly Weiner and Tanya Ortega. Carly is the communications manager over at the Schmidt Ocean Institute, and Tanya is the founder of the National Parks Arts Foundation. Laurie, meanwhile, is a mixed-media artist, video producer, and storyteller, and Rebecca, who is joining us by phone, is a painter based in Philadelphia. And, of course, what do organizations look for when selecting their artists? And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank so you. great to be here. Thank <laughs> you. Now, I want to start off with the artist because what we will endeavor to do is try to get our listeners to imagine the artwork that they've created. So this is a great opportunity for Laurie and Rebecca to maybe describe what it is that you've created. So Laurie, you want to you wanna dive into that, uh, <laughs> that question? Sure. Um, so specifically, I'm working on a piece uh, that's going to be at the Bishop Museum next week. It's called Laysan 1902, and it is inspired by the history of Laysan Island and uh, Laysan albatrosses, which there are many, many um, there living. And um, I, basically, this installation is uh, kind of like a raised sandbox that kind of evokes the sandy landscape of Laysan Island. Mm-hmm. And um, I've made these eggs uh, cast from... Um, specimens from the Bishop Museum of Laysan Albatross Eggs. And uh, I've cast beach debris and plastics in resin to kind of um, connect viewers to the, f- the chicks that die from eating this um, plastic mm. that washes up on the shores and that the adults accidentally feed to them. And so there are these beautiful kind of jewel-like objects that kind of glisten and they're really evotic, you know, be- these beautiful glowing orbs, and then when you really look closely at them, you know, they're basically preserved human plastic. Yeah. And so I kind of want people to, you know, meditate on our impact on these species and how they live so far away, but yet we are still impacting their life and death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen some of your pieces, and it is uh, uh, quite quite uh, um, uh, introspective in a way that you've seen some of the pictures of plastic debris inside, let's say, the intestines of young chicks, right? And then you also see it sometimes in their, um, in their uh, excrement. 
But then when you see it sort of in an egg, you know, in this sort of clear egg, and you think, wow, I mean, you know, that the impact of those plastics potentially could get all the way to the near <laughs> the the new newborn. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, that's going to be a very uh, scary thing for you know this whole species. Definitely it makes yeah. an impact. Now, now, Rebecca, um, I wanted to get give you a chance to talk a little bit about the uh, artwork that you've done. I mean, and and uh, we've talked a little bit about the. Uh, voyage that you went out on um, with the Fall Corps with the Schmidt Ocean Institute, and and so what? What? How would you describe your art? Sure. Well, actually, um, I actually have been working on sculpture and installation as well as painting, but particularly on my art at the residencies, I was focusing on painting, and um, on both of the uh, expeditions that I've been on, I had the chance to witness a live feed of data coming in of uh, the ocean floor. Um, they were using multi-beam sonar to map out the ocean floor, and I had the opportunity to see this live feed of data coming in and um, working in a 4D visualization program, I was able to sort of move through this data, kind of fly through the data and find interesting and compelling vantage points and then pull that data into my paintings. Um, Literally, I was projecting um, the sort of wireframe grids into my paintings. Um, superimposing over a layer of kind of a more process-oriented um, surface um, that actually was a response to the motion of the ship. Um, as the, On my first expedition, as the ship was sort of rocking and rolling, I was trying to kind of work with that motion and had the idea to sort of pour the paint onto the surface and let the, um, the the motion of the ship sort of dictate the movement and the dispersion of color and paint onto the surface. And so it sort of created this kind of atmospheric um, backdrop that I would then superimpose this more kind of mm. articulated and graphic um, mapping. And so I'm sort of, with this particular work um, on the, that I did on the ship, it's a little bit more perhaps referential than some of my more abstract work that I do um, back at home in my studio. I'm sort of looking for the for the viewer to, to gain an appreciation for these hidden landscapes that are, mm-hmm. um, you know, beneath our oceans. Um, we, we really only know about uh, 10% of our ocean floor in, in high resolution. Um, and so, you know, there's so much more to be mapped. And um, in the process, it's exciting for me to be, um, you know, having access to some of this brand new data mm-hmm. and kind of bring it into the work and, and bring that excitement to um, the general public. Rebecca, I love that. I mean, it kind of sounds like what you would talk about when you say data visualization, mm-hmm. but by adding the artist's sort of uh, view to it and eye to it and kind of bringing a lot more depth to it than your your pie chart or your <laughs> your, uh, your your computer your visualization. Your D3 visualization. Right. I, I, I love that. Now, uh, well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say that, you know, you know, I was thinking about you know the scientists and the artists are trying to make sense of the world around them, but but the artist I think is is generally thinking a lot about their audience when they're making a work of art, and so when they are, you know, putting something together, perhaps you know through this collaboration they can make scientific data you know kind of more interesting or more appealing to a viewer, you know, because of their kind of awareness of the audience. Right. Well, uh, Tanya, I wanted to. Uh, talk to you as well, of course, the founder of the National Parks Arts Foundation. National parks, they exist to raise awareness, make people aware of these beautiful natural resources, the importance of taking care of them. So 
uh, outreach and and conveying a message is a key part of those national parks. But when you talk about an artist in residence, I mean, how did you or how do uh, programs like these articulate the value when someone says, well, couldn't you just put up a sign that explains everything? Or, you know, <laughs> what about an audio guided tour led by a scientist? It seems a step further to say we're going to ex- we're going to invest in art as part of this mission of 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 sharing an idea or or making people aware of something. Well, the beautiful thing about art is that it touches people in their hearts and in their minds. A lot of things that are just interpretive, that are fact, 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 don't really touch people on an emotional side. It may be a story that helps people understand the history of a place. It may be a talking story. It could be heritage arts. And these are things that really transcend age and are, I mean, as far as the history of these islands, it's an oral history. Mm. That can be shown in film, in cultural arts, in all different kinds of media than just the regular um, interpretation. Not to say that our parks don't do that very right. well, but um, it, it it affects a lot more people than a lot of things are already out there. Well, I, just thinking back, you know, I, uh, I spend a lot of time, say, at the Volcano Observatory National Park up there, and there's a lot of great signage, and I'm sure I've read it all and learned many great things. But sometimes it's the story you hear from a park ranger or it's a specific, you know, fixture that someone's interpreted in a creative way that that's what sticks in your mind perhaps more so than than a fact like that. So uh, Carly with uh, the Schmidt Ocean Institute, it's a, it's a large organization. It's doing great scientific work. But again, you're saying the number of bodies you can fit on a ship is limited. How do you how did you make that case to say one of these spots should go to an artist? Well, we keep pushing that limit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can only fit so many people on Falcor. But we decided that these bursts of opportunity for artists are so important because they can tell the story and shed new light on the science that we do on board Falcor in a new way. And having the scientists and artists work together in this really uh, unique situation allows both the scientists to learn from the artists and the artists to learn from the scientists. And we've seen examples of that through the program um, throughout this entire year and uh, we hope to see more of it. Yeah, that's great. You know, and, and uh, Car- uh, Carly, in terms of the Schmidt Ocean Institute, I mean, uh, you know, we're familiar with the work that you folks do with Falcor and all the uh, surveys that you've done, you know, across the uh, Pacific Ocean. But it, it, it was um, very captivating to me to find out that Schmidt Ocean Institute had sponsored, you know, several artists in residence. And, and um, in fact, one of the callers uh, on the line, well, both callers on the line, I, I want to introduce uh, Michelle uh, Schwingel, who's a knitter, and she was on one of the voyages. And uh, I'll, I'll let Michelle talk a little bit about what she created uh, on her voyage on Falcor. Uh, Michelle, welcome to Bite Mark Cafe. Aloha, Bert. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm so excited to be in discussion with this group. I think this is such a fantastic topic for people to know more about and to know that these opportunities are out there. There are so many artists here in Honolulu in the state of Hawaii, and I think that opportunities like these give people the chance to branch out, go other places, and bring other experiences back to our state. So I think it's crucial that that we be considered for these programs. Michelle, Um, the experience I... Yes, go ahead. um, The experience I had in the Falcor was incredible for me in that it has made me so much more closely tied to where we are here in Hawaii. It, it, my voyage began in Hawaii 
and I went to Papeete in Tahiti. And Hmm. by going across the Pacific, by continuing through Polynesia, I've learned so much about where Hawaii is within this context. And and it gave me a, a perspective that I don't know if I could have ever managed in any other way. So the work that I'm making now is is related to all of that experience I've had, and it's it's going to sustain so much work for me over the next mm. years of my life here. I'm I'm so appreciative of it. I'm glad that it's a great inspiration. Can we challenge you to perhaps describe one of the ways that you've created uh, an artwork that was inspired by some of these experiences? Oh sure. Um, I think I'll I'll let others talk about more of the science work. But I want to mention one crazy project that I did while I was on board. Mm-hmm. I had done some guerrilla style artwork in the past where I was putting up things in a public domain that were unexpected here on the streets of Honolulu. But while I was on the ship, I referenced the the nautical history, especially in Britain, of painting ships with dazzle camouflage patterns. And while there's no way that I expected anyone to let me paint the ship, (laughs) I instead (laughs) knitted textiles that had very bold graphic patterns. And then I installed those knitted panels on various fixtures of the ship. Yeah, so Carly is giving us a sigh of relief. <laughs> and they look, they, they really changed the image of the ship. And and I'll look forward to showing that work later this year. Or That's actually great. in January at Mark's Garage. Yeah, no, I saw some photos of that, uh, uh, Michelle, and, and that was uh, a great, I guess it, it sort of livened up some of the, um, you know, the sh- typical ship coloring. <laughs> and, and Carly, <laughs> and I mean, you, battleship mean gray. <laughs> you must, yeah, Battleship Gray. I mean, Carly, you must have seen some of the, the work that uh, Michelle has done. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was just on Falkor uh, for all of July as we were uh, doing sea trials for our brand new ROV Sebastian. And Michelle, you'll be happy to know that a lot of your dazzle camouflage work is still uh, on board <laughs> and going strong. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for that report. <laughs> Thank you for calling in. Now, now, uh, Carly, you know, in terms of uh, having artists, and you have artists that range from knitting, <laughs> painting, you know, a variety of different things that that uh, um, both Rebecca and Michelle have have uh, participated in. Um, what is it that um, you're trying to, I guess? encourage by having like an artist in residence program? Sure. Well, the main thing is that we want to tell the story of the science. We want people to have a better understanding of our ocean planet, better uh, understand not only the science that we're conducting on board Falkor, but also understanding uh, the conservation and the exploration of the oceans. You know, we know, still know so little about our deep sea, and hopefully that these artists bring a new uh, perspective to some of the work that we're doing. Great. Sounds great. Uh, you know, we, we were getting some calls in, so I want to welcome uh, Katie from Hilo to Bite Mars Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for answering my call. Sure. Um, I would just like to ask your guests, lovely guests here, um, what the job prospects are for your positions. Um, I am a current college student. I'm majoring in performing arts and communications, and I think a job like yours would be wonderful to have. So um, I was just wondering, like, how, how did you get your job? Well, Katie, you're gonna have to That's stand in line because I want great. that job too. <laughs> you know, I I, I, I might give uh, Tanya a chance to talk a little bit about what her organization does because if you think about what uh, Tanya has has created in terms of the National Parks Arts Foundation, I would love to have that job too. <laughs> but Tanya, give us a little background on 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 what you guys do and how does uh you know how do you get involved with that kind of a position to find artists in residence in all the national parks? 
Wow, thank you for the kudos. My my ego is really big <laughs> right now, you guys. And Katie, thanks for asking the question. Um, the different positions that, that we have at the foundation ranges from everything from social media to interviewing artists before and when they come, even um, some fil- uh, filmographers, cinematographers that go to the islands, they all propose to us by proposal to say what exactly they want to do. And sometimes we come across people uh, that do things that we haven't even thought of. And those are positions that are in the foundation. Those aren't just the artists, so mm. they do a lot. Um, as far as the beginning of the foundation, I started working with the Park Service when I was 17 at Yellowstone and uh, I got to see and hear about the Moran paintings. And I don't know if you know that the national parks started because of artists, started because Moran's watercolor sketches, they took them to Congress and they showed Congress and they were convinced of the beauty of nature. So mm. that's kind of how it started. Um, Laurie, as, uh, as an artist, what would you, advice you would, would you give to this young Katie in Hilo <laughs> uh, if they wanted to kind of mix perhaps outreach and science and, and research like that and creativity and art? Well, that's a, a really um, – it's a challenging way to think about what you're going to do as a career as someone who's a creative thinker and how to you know make things that really impact people. And I've collaborated with conservation organizations locally and helped support – their messages because, you know, regardless of whether it's um, a social issue or whether it's science or conservation, like, they need images, they need compelling stories to help, you know, win the hearts and minds of people who who need to um, want to save these places, you know, or want to protect these places, as, as has been mentioned earlier. And so I think connecting your work to the audience mm. and connecting the spirit of what inspires you, I think, is, is you can find through teaching or collaborating with organizations and nonprofits and finding really creative ways that, you know, you kind of invent your own opportunities in some ways by, by, Mm -hmm. um, you know, meeting like-minded folks. Mm -hmm. So arts and communications are a reasonable double major there. Yeah, I I double majored. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you, Katie, for your call. (laughs) You know, I want to also give Rebecca a chance to, uh, you know, share with us a little bit about uh, how you got kind of interested in science because, I mean, a lot of artists, and I'm married to an artist, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not necessarily, uh, you know, going down the path of uh, uh, STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. But I think the artists that do get involved with artists uh, in residence uh, have to have some interest in science. And, and Rebecca, I mean, what's your connection with sort of the scientific uh, process? Sure. You know, and I was thinking about Katie's call and that thinking about the other Things that you study and, and sort of broadening your horizons is really important. It's not just sort of gaining the visual art skills, but it's it's what it's gaining a voice. It's sort of what do you want to say, and that's through the other kinds of things that you're learning. And so for me, what happened was when I was in college, um, my university was located in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, which is mm. filled with monumental gorges and waterfalls and rock formations, and it it's um, a geologist dream. Um, and so I took a geology course when I was there, and every class we would go to one of these incredible features and learn about it firsthand, and it just really had an impact on me. And it wasn't something that I incorporated in my work at that time. I was an art major. I never dreamed of incorporating it at the time, but it, it wasn't until much later that it, it kind of crept into my work um, after I 
completed my master's degree, I was you know, making these sort of abstract expressionist paintings that were really like needing some sort of structure. And all of a sudden, I started thinking back to um, my geology class and 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 thinking that it might be a good idea and make sense to bring some of that data into my work. You know, I also, for me, I've always sort of viewed that the geologic forces like um, the tectonic forces, like collision and rifts and violent upheavals as sort of a metaphor mm. for um, ebbs and flows of relationships and sort of life experiences. So it kind of made sense for me to tie this into my paintings that were already sort of emotive. And so that sort of began the journey. And then over the years, I've done many artists and residence programs in geologically interesting places, um, mainly land-based up until recently, but um, I was in Iceland, I was in the Canadian Rockies, and I was in Hawaii in 2005, and that was sort of what led me on this trajectory of uh, an interest in sonar mapping and in, and in the ocean floor, mm. and because I came across some sonar maps of um, Loihi, um, the next, you know, the seamount that's going to be the next uh, Hawaiian island, mm-hmm. and so I became very interested in this whole world that's, you know, hidden beneath um, the ocean. And um, it led me on a, I've been sort of working on this for about 11 years. Um, and over the last few years, I've had this, you know, really wonderful opportunity to get out to sea and to explore firsthand. And it's been really kind of life-changing. So That's well, great. No, that's great. That's great. And, you know, I, I, I'm kind of curious to hear what Tanya and Carly have to say about the kinds of artists that they would select in terms of being a part of their artists in residence. But when I hold that thought, we'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with Laurie Sumie, Rebecca Rutstein, as well as Carly Weiner from uh, the Smith Ocean Institute and Tanya Ortega from the National Parks Arts Foundation about artists in residence. We'd, of course, love to hear from you as well. You can call 941-3689 or, like Katie from the Neighbor Islands, call 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. The people who prepare the news are absolutely astoundingly wonderful. I mean, they understand and they go in depth. And that's one of the things that public radio takes the time necessary to tell the story. And that doesn't happen anywhere else. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. On August the 27th, the Atherton Studio is your portal to the rich cultures and folk music traditions of the lands from Mexico to Argentina. Enjoy corridos, boleros, cumbias, tangos, and more. Make your reservations at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during regular business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Laurie Sumie and Rebecca Rootstein, as well as Carly Weiner from the Schmidt Ocean Institute and Tanya Ortega from the National Parks Arts Foundation. And, of course, you can give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or from anywhere else, 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands and the mainland. And we want to go to Bridget from Philadelphia. Welcome huh. to Bite Marks Cafe. Hello. Hey, Rebecca Rutstein. <laughs> Hi, Bridget. I have a question for you. I was curious what your biggest takeaway was from your residency on board the Falkor 
and how you plan on exploring that this year in your studio practice. Well, great, Bridget. That's a, that's a great question. So, Rebecca, I mean, yeah, uh, give that some thought. What do you What do you think? How do you how How will you take that experience into your future work? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, I when I got on this ship, I became interested in something that I wasn't expecting to even be um, looking at, and that was these satellite um, imagery, these the satellite data of the Mekong River Plume. Um, that had been collected right before I had gotten on the ship. Mm. And I was sort of going in thinking that I was going to be working on sonar maps, and I had sort of a, like a loose plan, and I just became really just intrigued by these 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 satellite images. Um, they were showing um, sea surface temperature differentials and also um, chlorophyll um, densities of the water. And so through that, you could see how the Mekong River was dispersing into the South China Sea. And... I saw them, and I just started um, thinking about making paintings about them. And so I was sort of translating them into my own sort of interpretations and, and really um, rethinking color and and um, and sort of just reimagining them. And so I was working on a small scale on the ship, but I can really see um, taking, taking that and sort of bringing it to um, a much bigger scale at home, um, which is sort of my plan with... Um, you know, a lot of the work that I've done at CMA, I'm sort of limited in terms of scale. But, you know, one of the other things that's been amazing about the Fall Corps and, um, and also about the other uh, program I was on on the Nautilus is that they're very um, generous in sharing their data. They want people to have their data to, to see, you know, and, and, to, and to learn from what, you know, they've, they've collected. And so I have this now, you know, large amounts of information that I can then bring back into the studio and, and work with, you know, all of these maps. And so I feel like there is this just wonderful opportunity to to take things on a much bigger scale and um, and to see what happens. All right. Great, great. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the question. So, well, uh, let me put it to Laurie. I mean, um, you were an artist before the program. You are going to continue to be an artist. How could you, how would you articulate perhaps how your art might have changed or evolved as a result of uh, of your work with 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 scientific outreach and information um well i I would say that I'm very inspired by working with scientists. They're incredibly passionate, and um you know I've had the fortune of going out into the Hawaiian forests and working with them and interviewing them and getting to be out there. It's so much fun to to work with them and to learn from them um and i've been and that's mostly with my documentary work, mm. and that's definitely feeds into my artwork um, because it's, it's, about, it's about the stories about art. Uh, mm-hmm. the, I mean, the stories about science and nature and, and how we connect to those places um, that I'm really interested in. Now, now, Tanya, you know, in terms of the organization that now is going to bring in artists in residence, what is it that you are looking for, particularly in terms of a, uh, maybe a skill set, maybe, uh, you know, uh, an experience? I mean, what is it that you are looking for when selecting those artists? Well, that is a tricky question. <laughs> a lot of people don't actually like to hear it. So uh-huh. I will be brutally honest. What we look for, number one, is excellence in art. We look for what that art does, kind of what, what trickles from that art, what trickles from that inspiration. Um, and that is what meets other objectives in science, in education. 
but number one is excellence in art. We we a lot of people think that um, a lot of artists think that because they are able to to meet objectives of some some other entity or something else or the parks because they meet those objectives they will be the artist in residence. So when you say objectives what what objectives are you talking about? Um themes that the park has mm-hmm. or let's say um somebody is is um doing a a, a DNA sort of fingerprinting um project a scientific entity. And an artist who hasn't done that before, it's not part of their media, will go in and decide, you know, write write their proposal as if they are going to do that. Now, when we see something like that, it doesn't have art as the number one. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The number one. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, so we're looking for excellence in art number one and foremost. So, Great. yes, that's that's a horrible thing to say these days, but it does meet a lot of objectives after that. Carly, I mean, what what do you look for when selecting those artists? And Resistance to seasickness, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, that adds to the experience, definitely. And we, you know, we are looking for excellence in art, but in a different way, we're really looking for artists that can reach different community members, that can tell the story of the science with their mediums and try to get a variety of artists. I mean, and I think that's evident from the type of art we've had on board so far and the artists we've had from uh, musical composers to cartoonists to digital arts to Rebecca's paintings to Michelle's fiber arts. Uh, It's been quite a a variety of artists that we've been able to have on board. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, And do you look at the artists as being the sort of the voice for, you know, the science that's coming out of uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute? Well, as you know, we uh, try to do a lot of different voices or outreach for mm-hmm. our science. Mm-hmm. We have multimedia journalists on board. We bring students on board. So we really try to uh, cover a wide array of communications tools and skills to be able to share the science and the um the information that we're collecting about the ocean, and it varies so much from cruise to cruise. You know, we're doing all kinds of different research. So it's just uh, dependent, but the most important thing that we look in our artists is that they can communicate with different communities. So it's not just a matter of being able to come on board and do art, but how do they tell the story of the art and how do they share that art with the public? Mm -hmm. Um, Rebecca and then Laurie, I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is as an artist, certainly you have a point of view. You have your art and what you express, but your engagement in this case is also to help convey a message on behalf of the institution that is is employing the artist and residents. So is that a challenge, um, Rebecca? I mean, to incorporate both someone else's objectives as well as what you want to express yourself as an artist? That's a great question. And, you know, I don't, it hasn't felt like a conflict at all. I mean, I sort of see myself doing um, kind of a few different bodies of work concurrently. I'm, you know, currently doing some, as I mentioned, some sculptural work that's that's maybe less specifically related to the data, um, but still has that sort of, you know, inspiration at its you know, core. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I, this has just been such an incredible opportunity to, to work with scientists to, to see, see the world in this way. Um, and so I, I'm excited. I'm, I'm genuinely excited by ocean exploration and, and this idea of kind of revealing these hidden landscapes. So even though this work is a little bit more, as I mentioned, referential than maybe mm-hmm. some of my other work that's more abstract, I see it as an exciting kind of, you know, project. And, and if I can help, you know, communicate the science um, to a bigger audience and get people interested, I'm thrilled, you know. And, and so I, 
I I don't feel like it's a conflict at all. I'm, I'm enjoying the process and, a lot. And Laura, you mentioned as a you know a documentarian, as a storyteller, in a way, your your passion is telling some untold stories or stories that need to be told. So, do you feel you did you 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 likely did not feel any conflict in terms of conveying your voice as well as the voice of the organization? Um, not at all. I mean, you know, because I'm not just purely interested in like an insect or an animal. Mm-hmm. Or just, you know, pretty trees. Like, I'm really interested in how humans sort of interact with these things and, and how we connect to them and how we interpret them, you know. And so, like, one of the things I learned is something called uh, plant blindness. So when you go into a forest or a green area, like, everything is just green. But then you go with someone who really knows the plants, and over time you learn what those are. Then you don't just see a bunch of green stuff. Like, you kind of can identify uh, your environment in a really specific way. And as an artist, you're using your ways of observing the world and kind of combining it with these um, experiences to kind of create um, a way of seeing the world that is universal and very specific. Mm-hmm. I love that. Now, now Laurie, uh, you're involved with uh, the um, uh, Bishop Museum and the Voyages, uh, I think it's no Journeys, Journeys uh, exhibit, uh, which kind of covers Papahanaumokuakea and, and some of the history of Midway. Uh, and I know Michelle is also kind of involved with that exhibition. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, how you view your work in that exhibit. Well, I kind of, it was sort of a bit of an accident um, that I even made the piece, but I was really, uh, I read a story about um, Lisa and Albatross's uh, nests being disrupted at Kaina Point. And it was just really saddening to me uh, of how humans are just, destroying these birds' homes and mm-hmm. had no, like, sense of, you know, how rare these birds are and how we're lucky we are to have them here. And so from that story, I wanted to respond and to kind of um, enable people who might never get to see these birds or even go to a place like um, Midway or Laysan to see, like, immense numbers. Like, I've seen m- many pictures and I've seen some videos, but I can imagine being in that place and appreciating what's there. And I wanted to bring that to an audience locally in, you know, Honolulu, where you don't see a lot of native species. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was just really connecting something locally that happened and kind of responding to it and, and creating art that kind of builds maybe some empathy mm. for these creatures that are so incredible. Yeah, and I, don't, I think uh, Michelle is off the line, but uh, I know she is going to be kind of like a weekly artist uh, there at that exhibit, and she is part of the there's a there's a whole cool like selfie station, and she has her um, knitted coral that she's going to be demonstrated. So I think that's a, that's a kind of a cool thing to go visit. Yeah, I got to check it out. It's really cool. So definitely go to the exhibit. It's super fun. There's like lots of fun interactive things like Michelle's coral. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Carly, you invest in artists. You bring them on your ship. I love the diversity of the kind of artists. But how do you, is there a point where you go to a board of directors and you have to report on the return on that investment? Yeah. Or is it innately understood as part of your core mission? Well, we're very lucky. One of our co-founders of Schmidt Ocean Institute, Wendy Schmidt, it was actually her idea to do the Artist at Sea program and mm. to bring this medium to the scientists. And we really focus on science and technology and sharing that information. And so we bring that into the art um, that we're doing. We had one artist, David, who actually is doing computer algorithms with pH data from uh, the Wendy Schmidt X Prize uh, pH sensor that we have on board mm-hmm. and visually presenting that. So I think the art is sort of the report out, and that's mm. how we share and show that we're making progress and success with it. 
And Tanya, how about for your 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 whole program is is dedicated to this? Um, how do you convey that value to someone who might be a little more bottom line oriented? I love how you put it. Actually, the art is the proof, and that is the ultimate. That's the ultimate proof. And when that affects other people, as it does, if it's two dimensional art video, whatever, um, that that is the ultimate proof. And you know, sometimes. As you know, that doesn't happen for years, but it does happen for years and years and years. I mean, right now we're still looking at, you know, things thousands of years old, and mm -hmm. that's what we're looking for in, in excellence's art. And uh, so, you know, um, Tanya, with respect to the work that you're doing here in, in Hawaii, can you announce anything that is going to be happening at our national parks here? Yes, I can for the very Please first do. time, in fact. Aha. So um, one of our gems is, of course, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Mm -hmm. And Cindy Orlando, the superintendent there, is an incredible um, uh, she's an incredible person, and so we were able to start programs there that have been highly effective. And um, right now we have Rick San Nicholas there who um, makes regalia of warriors and loyalty of Hawaii. He's Hawaiian. That's his, his lineage. But upcoming in October is Oahu's very own Byron Yasui. Mm. who is a jazz um, musician. Yes, yeah. exactly. So he's going to come up to the park with Noreen Naughton for a month. Wow. So we are just really thrilled and and you know, as a real artist, they say what are we going to do? They're going to they're going to do a a program or two, but mostly it is so they are inspired. Great. Now, you know, Carly, I was going to give you a chance, but you, we kind of ran out of time. But I know I want to let people know about your show at the Barks Garage coming up in January. But we can sort of remind people as we get closer we'll to it. We'll have the you day. back to talk about that. I love that. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Well, Lori Sume, and uh, of course, she has her artwork over at the Bishop Museum, the uh, Journeys uh, um, exhibit over there. So you might want to go check that out. Rebecca Rutstein uh, is... Uh, Got her work, and she's going to be coming back to Hawaii, I guess, during the uh, Mark uh, Mark's Garage show in January of 2017. Of course, Carly Weiner is from the Schmidt Ocean Institute, and Tanya Ortega is with the National Parks Arts Foundation. And we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you Mahalo. so much. Thank you so this much. Was really fun. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week when we'll talk about the upcoming World Conservation Congress. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And I'm on Twitter too, at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, we'll leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Rogue Wave and a song called California Bride. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Where the fall.